would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We'll read the first two verses and then skip to verse 7 as we look to the third commandment this evening. Before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Lord, we acknowledge our need for your sovereign grace to work within our hearts an increased longing to revere and honor your name and pray as we study your word that it would serve toward that end, Heavenly Father, uh, cultivating within a longing uh, to, uh, to honor uh, the name of the one who has laid down his life for us and redeemed us through his shed blood. It's in the name of that precious, risen, and reigning Savior that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The word of our God, you may be seated. As we move along in our studies through the book of Exodus, as we come to this portion of God's word and looking at the Ten Commandments in particular, slowing down a bit as we work our way through this portion of the word of God, let's keep in mind a couple of important principles as we look to the third commandment this evening. First, we need to keep in mind the context in which the law of the Lord was given. God's chosen people, the children of Israel, have already been redeemed from the land of slavery, set free from that land of death and occupation. And now, as a delivered people, this is how they are called to live, to live according to the law of the Lord. Now, John Calvin and others pointed out that there are various purposes of the law of the Lord, but Calvin pointed out that the primary purpose of God's law is to shape and inform the believer in Christ. And so the law is to be understood in the context of the covenant of grace. This helps us to understand the freeing nature, not the oppressive burden of the law of God. And the second thing to keep in mind as we think about applying God's law to the Christian life is that if something is forbidden in the law of the Lord, then its opposite is required. And if something is required, then its opposite is forbidden. And so tonight we'll take these principles and seek to apply them to the third commandment, considering what this commandment forbids, but also what the third commandment requires of God's people when it comes to honoring the name of the Lord. Now let's remember that the first commandment instructs us to worship God alone, for he alone is God. The second commandment informs us on how we are to worship the Lord, namely according to his word. And we turn now to the third commandment, which guides us in proper reverence of the God whom we worship. And so first tonight, let's talk a bit about the importance of a name and the importance of God's name in particular. We might put our first point this evening as this, what's in a name? And when we think about the whole notion of naming, I think there is something both authoritative and intimate about the naming process. Let's think about both of these, the authority of naming and the intimacy of calling another by name. 
Now, to name someone, to put a name upon another, is first of all an assertion of authority. For example, new parents appropriately exercise that God-given authority by naming their child. Oftentimes, they're not even allowed to leave the hospital until they have a name that they can put down on that birth certificate. They don't wait for the child to turn three or four and then ask him or her what they want to be called. We'd have some pretty interesting names among our church family if that were the case. But those new parents might spend hours during the pregnancy trying out together first and middle and last names, seeing how it sounds and how everything fits together. Are people going to shorten this name in a way that we don't like? Do I have any childhood trauma connected to that name? A bully or a mean girl from my past? Is there someone in my immediate social sphere and I don't want them thinking perhaps that I named my child after them? Maybe they researched the etymology of that name, where it came from and what it means, that it reflects something perhaps in their heritage or some biblical truth. They might name a child after a beloved family member, someone they admire or respect, or perhaps an important historical figure or a gifted theologian. As we have among our own church family, we have, a, we have a Calvin, we have an Owen, we have a Cooper, we have a Ryle, we have a Machen, we even have a, a Breckenridge. We still need a Gerhardus, though, and a Cornelius. So if y'all are still taking some suggestions out there, those are ones to keep in mind. Now, when you read through redemptive history of the Bible, you find parents naming their child for different reasons. Sometimes it's because of some attribute that's immediately evident upon their birth. Jacob, for example, his name literally means grabber, for he is holding on to his brother Esau's heel as he comes from the womb. Esau is hairy, and so that's what his name means. Or perhaps they put a name upon a child that reflects something of God's promise. Samuel, God has heard. Joshua, the Lord saves. Sometimes names are less than flattering. My favorite less than flattering name, if we could put it like that, is a character named uh, Nabal, who we come across in 1 Samuel 25. Nabal's name literally means fool. I'm not sure what his parents were thinking when they named him that. But he truly lives up to that name as you read through that narrative of Samuel. At other times in redemptive history, the Lord renames his chosen people. Abram becomes Abraham, Jacob becomes Israel. <clears throat> or the Lord may tell those parents what the child's name is to be before they are born, as in the case of Isaac, John, and of course Jesus. And in all of that, the Lord is showing that he has the right and the prerogative to do that because of his authority over all things. But what's true of each one of us is that we did not name ourselves but names were given to us by another who does so because of their authority over us. And so as we think about the name of God, the question arises, well, who named him? And the answer, of course, is no one ever named him. The Lord names himself. And no one can presume to control God or to manipulate him through the use of his name. It would be the height of presumption and arrogance to refer to the all-powerful, infinite God of creation by calling him a name that he has not ascribed to himself. And so when it comes to the name of the Lord God, 
His name reveals something wonderfully true about his very nature. And then by sharing that name with us, he does not leave us guessing as to what to call him or how we might address him as we approach him. But it's not just a matter of authority. To call someone by their name is an indication that you know them. And of course, some names carry more intimacy than others. Husbands and wives perhaps have pet names that they refer to one another that no one else is permitted to call them because of the nature of the intimacy that they share together. Now, when someone gets your name wrong, either when they misspell your name or they mispronounce your name, you know right away that they don't really know you. Some of you even go by a shortened version of your first name, or you go by your middle name, and that's all we know you by. And so when you get a phone call from a telemarketer and they call you by your first full name, you know right away they don't know you, and so it's okay to end the call. Now, in some Jewish traditions, they believed that the best way to revere the name of God was not even to refer to him by any of his prescribed names, even to call him the Lord, but simply to refer him by the generic name Yashem, which just means the name. But of course, that's very cold and impersonal. Now, certainly the third commandment instructs us to revere the name of the Lord, but the Lord has revealed his name to us. He has revealed much about his nature to us and has granted us the privilege of calling him by name and knowing his attributes. And so we can refer to the Lord our God as creator of all, the God of heaven and earth. We can call unto him as our heavenly father full of compassion. He is the most high God who reigns over all. He is the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of hope the God of peace, the God of justice. He is the only one holy in all of his ways, full of righteousness and truth. He is the king of the ages, and he is the king over the lives of his people. He is the rock of our salvation, a refuge in time of trouble. He is our redeemer, and he is faithful and the God of all comfort. He is the God who sees all, the God who knows all. He is the God who has purpose in all things. He is the God who is always with me. He is my shepherd, and he is my healer. He is my sanctifier. He is my provider, and so much more. We might call upon him not only according to his name and the names that he ascribes to himself, we can call upon him according to his attributes, things that he possesses alone. He is self-existent, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible, preeminent, transcendent, majestic, and immutable in all of his ways. Herman Bavink writes in his Reformed Dogmatics, in Exodus 3, one of the first things that Scripture teaches us concerning God is that he has a free, independent existence and life of his own that is distinct from all creatures. He has a being all his own. He bears his own names, names that do not belong to any creature. He is the one who is and will always be what he was. That is, he eternally remains the same in relation to his people. He is self-existent. He existed before all things, and all things exist only through him. He is Lord of all the earth, dependent upon nothing, but everything depends on him. 
He kills and makes alive. He forms the light and creates the darkness. He does according to his will with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, so that people are in his hand as clay in the hands of a potter. His counsel and good pleasure is the ultimate ground of all that is and happens. He does all things for his own sake, for the sake of his name and praise. Nor does he need anything, for he is all-sufficient and has life in himself. Thus he is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, absolutely independent, not only in his existence, but consequently also in all his attributes and perfections, in all his decrees and deeds. He is independent in his intellect, in his will, in his counsel, in his love, in his power, thus being all-sufficient in himself and not receiving anything from outside of himself. He is, by contrast, the only source of all existence and life, of all light and love, the overflowing fountain of all good. That's just one paragraph. And as we take time in our own prayers with the Lord to dwell upon his names, to meditate upon his attributes that he ascribes to himself, this feeds our hearts, it nourishes our souls, it gives to us comfort and peace. Truly, the name of the Lord is wonderful, and we are privileged to know the Lord our God by name, to call upon his name, and to ascribe truth to him by exalting his name according to how he has revealed himself to us. And so as we think about the instruction of this commandment, let's think secondly this evening about some of the ways in which we might violate the third commandment. And this is our second point this evening, ways in which we may misuse his name. Now, the first thing that probably comes to mind to us when we think of the third commandment is how, with our words, we misuse the name of God, either in swearing or cursing with our words, speaking of God in a frivolous manner. You see, to take God's name or to take up God's name is to use his name in an oath or to lift up that name in worship, in prayer, or even to lift up that name in conversation with others. And so to take God's name in vain is to take that which should be honored and revered, that name which should be held high, and instead it is to degrade that name, belittle that name. Treat that name with little regard or value. And not only his name proper, but again, some of these other things we noted earlier, his attributes, his word, his works, as our catechism instructs us. And so we misuse his name when we are careless in the way that we speak about him or careless in the way in which we speak about his attributes. Thomas Watson helps us to understand ways in which we might take the Lord's name in vain by speaking slightly or irreverently about his name. Perhaps we speak against his word or against his works. Perhaps we don't like the demands that he makes, us, makes of us from Scripture. Or perhaps we speak against his works of providence. It's that subtle sin of grumbling and complaining about our circumstances or people in our life or even an objection about our lot in life. 
This is a form of contempt toward the Lord and toward his name. When we treat the providence of the Lord as wicked or cruel or unjust, we are misusing his name. When we profess his name, calling ourselves Christians, but then live hypocritically or not consistently with that name, when we fail to live as ambassadors for Christ Jesus, but instead live for our own desires and purposes, we take the name of Christ in vain. And one goes on that when we use his name in idle discourse, speaking of him lightly instead of with holy awe and reverence from the heart, When we gather in worship and we offer our lips to him in praise, but our hearts are far from him, we are guilty of hypocrisy and misuse of his name. When we pray to the Lord, but don't believe that he hears us or that he will answer our prayers, we treat his name lightly. When we dismiss the authority of his word as it's taught to us by failing to take that truth and drive it into our hearts, or when we abuse the word of God for our own ends, twisting the word to make it say what we want it to say, when we ascribe something evil or wicked to the Lord, when we make rash vows without considering the consequences of those things, or when we make a promise that we know we have no intention of keeping, when we say things lightly and frivolously like, I swear to God, these are among the ways in which we violate the third commandment. The Dutch theologian Wilhelmus Abrockel adds that casting the lot through gambling or playing the lottery reveals a heart that's not satisfied with your present condition and the desire to become rich. It is foolish lust and it's tempting God to depart from the ordinary and provide in an extraordinary way. The point here that Abrockel is getting at is there might be ways in which we treat God in a way that is other than how he has revealed himself to be. And as we look deep into our hearts, there might be ways in which we make the Lord tolerant of something in our own lives that his word clearly condemns. Or we make him accepting of a sin in our life when in fact he calls us to holiness of life. Or when I bring Jesus down to my level as though he would never confront my sin. These are all ways in which we might treat the name of God lightly. So there are many ways in which we may misuse the name of God. So how are we charged with keeping this commandment of the Lord? This is our third point this evening, that is keeping the third commandment. The third commandment calls for us to honor, to respect, to seek to glorify God in all of the ways in which he has made himself known. Again, our catechism is helpful in its instruction here. To treat his name with respect, not only in the things that we say, but we are to respect him and to revere him, really, with our entire lives. Calvin notes how the third commandment points out how we need a greater sense of the majesty and wonder of God, both in our thoughts of how we conceive of him, but also in our esteem of obedience toward his word, but also in response to all of his actions, which are wise and just and good. And so as we are more and more captivated by the splendor of our God, we will respond with increased words of reverence, of awe, of trust. 
Even when we speak about the routine things of life, we're learning to do so out of humble and submissive hearts that long to live for the glory of our God. So this commandment, you can see, is really getting at the heart of the worshiper, at the heart of the believer in Christ. We want to keep this commandment by delighting in his word, receiving his word with humility and reverence. And as we think back to his works of providence, we honor the Lord by submitting to his sovereign rule and the way in, he, the way in which he directs things, both in world history and even the way in which he directs things down into my very life. And certainly we pray for evil circumstances to change. We pray for hardships to be removed. But our greater heart's desire is that the Lord's name would be glorified even if that means trials and hardships remain. And so we honor his name as we strive to be faithful ambassadors of Christ, being mindful that we represent the Lord Jesus wherever we go. When we take the name Christian upon ourselves, this is a description of who we are. It's an acknowledgement of ultimate allegiance and authority. To take the name of Christ upon ourselves is to state that we are followers of the Lord Jesus, that we belong to him, that in fact we long to serve him with everything in our life, from our words to the desires and longings of the heart, to the decisions that we make and the priorities that we set for ourselves, to the things that we hope for and expect of the future. Everything about us, we long to be subservient to the will of our faithful God. We keep this commandment as we confess the Lord boldly, as we call upon him with our needs, with the longings of our hearts. We pray to him trusting in all manner of requests, knowing that there is nothing beyond his ability to accomplish. And so we pray bold prayers. We pray assertive prayers, and yet prayers that are at the same time submissive, We keep this commandment as we love his truth, as we long to live according to his truth. We can sort of think about applying this commandment to the heart and then working it out in our lives in sort of ever increasingly larger concentric circles, honoring the Lord with the disposition of the heart and the things that we entertain within the mind, telling of his wonders to our children and within our homes praising him and thanking him among the people of God, singing praises to his name out of hearts that are stirred in affection toward him, desiring to honor him within our schools, our places of business, even on the soccer field or at the park, among others we encounter. And then even further out than that, longing to declare the glory of God to the nations. Joel Beakey writes that a heart that fears the Lord is a heart that directs and informs the speech. So while we're talking about the use of God's name with our lips, Beakey rightly drives deeper to see that it all starts with that disposition of the heart within. The Heidelberg Catechism 99 says that with fear and reverence, we want to rightly confess the Lord, worship the Lord, and want the Lord to be glorified with our words and with our works, 
These are among the ways in which we are called to honor the name of God. So as we think about all of these various ways in which perhaps we fail to honor the name of the Lord, all the ways in which we are called to honor his name, but ways in which we fall short, it's appropriate to go to the Lord and to seek forgiveness and ask him for help to be more consistent in your walk each day as a follower of Jesus, that there would be increased consistency between profession and practice. Now, let's return to the important context of the law of the Lord. Because if all we do is focus upon ways in which we violate this commandment and all the ways in which we are called to keep this commandment and yet fall short, if that's all that we see outside of the context of the law of the Lord, then we are merely cultivating a moralistic or pharisaical heart. But as we understand that this is a law given to a redeemed people, to those who were in Christ Jesus, then we will long with our hearts to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And so let's think briefly, fourthly, and finally this evening about giving our hearts to our Savior, giving our hearts to Jesus, which is really what this commandment and all of the commandments of the Lord are about. There's this wonderful pastoral counsel that I read recently from Thomas Watson. He says, when we consider all of the ways in which we have violated the law of the Lord or all of the ways in which we have failed to keep the law of the Lord, at times it can be overwhelming and even discouraging, which is why we must continue to come back to the cross of Christ. And Watson uses this image. He says, the devil seeks to put two false eyeglasses before you. We might think of a set of binoculars with one of the lenses turned the wrong way. And he says, one of those lenses makes sin appear small and inconsequential, leading us to believe that sin is no big deal. But the other, after we do sin, after the conscience within the mind and heart is pricked, it magnifies, making sin seem so big that it cannot be forgiven. And so we need the ongoing comfort of the obedience of our Savior As we think about the full scope of the law, and really we've just scratched the surface tonight on just one of the commandments of the Lord. As we think about the full scope of the law, it's most wonderful and amazing that we have a perfect Savior in the Lord Jesus who kept this law his entire life, obeying it in perfect, personal, perpetual obedience, all for the sake of his people that Jesus fulfills the requirements of the law by never taking the name of his heavenly Father in vain, by always speaking the truth, by never, even for a moment, treating that name lightly or carelessly, but in fact submitting himself even to the most painful and shameful death upon the cross. And some of the most wondrous things are said about the name of Jesus. John chapter 3 We are not condemned because we believe in the name of Jesus. John 14, we may go to our Father in heaven and ask of him anything in the name of Jesus. Later in John 14, the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts in the name of Jesus. John 20, by believing in the word of God, we have life in his, the name of Jesus. Acts 2 and Acts chapter 4, all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. 
There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we might be saved. Philippians 2, his name is highly exalted above all names. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And though his name is truly wonderful, his is a name that was and continues to be mocked and belittled. He was called wicked names, blasphemous names, and yet his mouth was silent before false accusers as he took our guilt, as he took our shame upon himself. And in the resurrection from the grave, our God shows unto us the majesty and the splendor and the wonder of the name of Jesus. His is the name that calms all fears. Jesus is the name that makes our sorrows cease. Jesus is the name that breaks the power of reigning sin. Jesus is the name that sets the prisoner free. Jesus is the name that makes the foulest clean. His is the name that heals the broken heart. His is the name that gives life to the dead. This is the name that is above every name. And oh, how we long to give our hearts in worship to this most blessed name. And what peace to know the covenant name of the Lord, to call him by that name, and to know that he hears us. And he hears us not because of something within us, but he hears us because of our union with that most blessed name, Jesus. What a privilege, what wonder. To know him by name is to know him most intimately is to know all of the benefits of his salvation. Matthew Henry wrote, to know God in his name is to love him, obey him, submit to him, and trust in him as our owner, ruler, and benefactor, to devote ourselves to him as our sovereign Lord, depend upon him as our chief good, and direct all to his praise as our highest end. This is life eternal. And even now as we close, we have that privilege of lifting our hearts in praise as we seek to grow in our devotion to him, as we fix our gaze upon our heavenly home, as we fix our gaze upon our most blessed Savior, whom we will see one day. And be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. Amen.